Hey, will you be my Valentine? VegCast. Yours truly, VegCast59. VegCast. A full menu from first to last. VegCast. Yes, it is indeed another full menu of pre-Valentine's Day vegetarian podcasting goodness coming your way here on February 13th, Friday the 13th, and we are celebrating not so much Friday the 13th, and in fact not even Valentine's Day because we did our Valentine's Day podcast, and you can look that up at VegCast.com, but as it is still the cold season here in the northern climes, we have with us a guest who can talk about making of hearty stews that will warm your body and soul using a pressure cooker and about how pressure cookers are not just for stews anymore and may in fact be a vegan's best friend. We have with us the veggie queen, Jill Nussanau, who will cover all of those topics. And for our musical selection, we have back with us again... Uh, whom you heard on VegCast 42, Dada Veda, with a new song, A Better Deal. And we will have a science fact for you about a correlation between cured meats and cancer, another correlation between that. And uh, we have a couple more little things here and there, so uh, that will all be coming up. I invite you to sit back relax and enjoy if possible as we deliver to you this episode of okay before we get to that interview just a quick look on a couple items from the news one news item that you may or may not have been aware of is that the u.s dairy industry is in crisis because dairy farmers just can't seem to get paid enough to do what they are doing to produce America's dairy products. Uh, As the worldwide economic slowdown has reduced demand for milk and milk products, uh, wholesale milk prices are falling, but uh, the prices paid to dairy farmers are also falling, and they want those propped up. Uh, even more than they are regularly by your tax dollars. So uh, senators are actually looking at a plan to essentially bail out the dairy industry. This is not one of those bailouts that you hear a lot about on CNN, but one of the interesting aspects, I thought, of this is that, quote, the plan includes calls for the federal government to increase its purchase of dairy products distributed through USDA nutrition programs which supply low-income individuals, food banks, and schools. So let's just be absolutely clear about this. The USDA is going to buy and uh, pass on to various constituencies more dairy products. Now, why are they going to be doing that? Because the people at the receiving end need the nutrition of milk? They need more milk? Or is it because the USDA needs to do something to help prop up these milk prices? Well, it's obviously the latter, as we can see by the narrative of this story. They're doing this specifically in response to this crisis being faced by the dairy farmers. So let's just always be clear on what the milk 
commodities in our country are all about. They're not, they have nothing to do with actual nutrition. They have everything to do with propping up the dairy industry, which has had, as we know, several uh, representatives on the USDA uh, board itself. Another piece is uh, from Scientific American. They did a pretty nice uh, write-up about uh, how meat contributes to global warming, a uh, an article also called The Greenhouse Hamburger, which kind of goes over uh, a lot of the data from Livestock's Long Shadow, which we've discussed, we've long discussed on VegCast. Uh, and they do a pretty good job. It also has a, a, a nice slideshow, which I imagine in the printed version is just a series of graphics sprinkled throughout the article. But I was entertained. If you go to this, we'll, uh, we'll put the link in the show notes, and you can go see this for yourself. The slideshow does a pretty good job of visualizing information for you so you can see and better grasp some of the scales involved in these things and uh, some of the outsize comparisons that there are. But I was particularly interested in the second slide, which uh, says carbon dioxide equivalent emissions from producing half a pound of this food are the same as emissions from driving this far. So then they have potatoes. They have a little car there, 0.17 mile. Apples, a car moves for just a teeny tiny bit, 0.20 miles. Asparagus, car moves for just a little more, 0.27 miles. Chicken... The car moves forward one entire length as the number increases to 0.73 miles. And then for pork, the car is about uh, three lengths in front of the previous car uh, for 2.52 miles. So you see how this is working. The car, you know, kind of moves forward on the scale of how much more uh, carbon dioxide emissions you're getting from uh, these respective foods. Then the very last one is beef, which is 9.81 miles. And yet the beef car is not even as far in front of the pork car as the pork car is in front of the chicken. That's right. The beef car, which is almost, which is supposed to represent a scale of almost four times as much carbon dioxide equivalent emissions as pork does not even go twice as far as pork, whereas everything else on this chart was in scale. And frankly, if they had kept it to the scale that they started with, the uh, the beef car would have been clear off the screen and clear off of the page that they would have printed this on. Uh, but And th- there's no note saying this is not to scale or just the beef thing is not to scale. Um, so it's it's very odd for Scientific American, which is you know, trying to present you the scientific case and clarify data and everything to do this and not make a note that, you know, well, we couldn't put it out this far because it would just, uh, we don't have a page that wide. But it almost looks as though the conspiracy theorist might say that they just don't want to face how huge the difference is and how much damage beef uh, consumption is actually doing to our environment. So check that out. I think it's uh, pretty entertaining, but uh, as a whole, I would say that the article is uh, is a pretty good addition to our literature on the connection between meat eating and global warming. Um, but speaking of warming, uh, we did promise some warming foods for you and uh, how you can cook them faster and better 
And to talk about that, we are going to turn now to the Veggie Queen, Jill Nussanow. All right, right now on VegCast, we are pleased to be joined by the Veggie Queen, Jill Nussanow. Jill, how are you doing today? I'm great, fans. How are you? I'm pretty well, and thanks for joining us on VegCast. It is my pleasure. And uh, we want to talk to you specifically about uh, pressure cooking because you are one of the foremost experts, if not the foremost among the vegetarian community on pressure cooking, and it seems like this is something that comes in handy during the winter time. So we will get to that, but uh, we want to point out, first of all, that you are the author of the book, The Veggie Queen, Vegetables Get the Royal Treatment. Is that right? That is right, Vance. Um, just... I call it a lighthearted look at vegetables, and it has more than 100 seasonal recipes. And I divided the book up according to the seasons to help people know what's in season when. Great. Well, that's, I mean, that's kind of why we're, we're talking now. We're trying to get that seasonal angle. So if we can talk just specifically from that uh, about winter vegetables or winter recipes, what, what would be a good example of something like that? Oh, something like roasted root vegetables that you throw in parsnips, potatoes, uh, rutabaga, celery root, you know, all of those rooty things, carrots. Um, you know, it's interesting because <clears throat> I've done a class called Winter Vegetables Beyond Broccoli. Right. And it's actually one of my most popular classes because people think, oh, there's no vegetables in the winter. Um, I I'm fortunate. I live in California, so we have vegetables all year round. But there are vegetables in the winter, but most people don't know what to do with them because they're a lot of them are gnarly-looking roots. Yeah. And so, um, but, you know, there are a lot of vegetables around. I mean, the ones that grow fresh are cauliflower is really big now, Romanesco broccoli, which is related to cauliflower. But a lot of those rooty things, people are just like, ugh, what do you do with that? Right. And what, what do you do with them? <laughs> I mean, Well, you, you can, can always, like them? I said, roasting them is a wonderful thing to do with them. You can always um, just cook them and make them into soups or purees. Um, which is, you know, good. You can make them into gratins, which I do with soy milk and maybe some breadcrumbs on top. Gratin? Um, I'm not familiar with that. What is gratin? Oh, it's, you know, it's a baked dish where you do thin layers of vegetables, and I actually have one in my book. I think it's for potatoes and kohlrabi, which is the stump, the audience vegetable. Uh-huh. Um, and you just layer them really thin, and you can put, like, um, you know, like teas or follow your heart vegan cheese in between and then you just pour soy milk over it um, and you bake it till mm. the till the milk absorbs into the vegetables so kind of like a, a lasagna dish without the, the pasta <laughs> yeah except you know it's French so you call it a gratin uh-huh okay and um, let me just ask you one thing about people talking about winter vegetables and it's always about the root vegetables how come you never hear about kale I mean, you oh, can well, kale you know, grows in the winter. Thank you so much. Because winter is about greens, too. And let me tell you, I love greens. And I encourage everyone, you know, this is the time of year that people get sick. Right. If they eat greens every day, they can actually help prevent that sickness. Mm -hmm. And so I just, um, in my class the other night, um, we did, I do this dish really simple, sautéed greens with garlic. And we used, we must have had 10 different kinds of greens that we used. So there were, we had like four or five different kinds of kale and these Chinese greens and collards and chard. 
I mean, all kinds of stuff. It was great. Great. Well, let's, um, so in terms of the manner of cooking, I mean, one of the, the places you've staked your, uh, your, uh, your, 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 Huh? My claim? <laughs> okay. I was going to say metier. I was trying to keep the uh, French ah. theme going there. But um, is the, the pressure cooking, and you have a DVD about pressure cooking. What's the name of that? It's called Pressure Cooking, A Fresh Look, Delicious Dishes in Minutes. Okay. And I have to tell you that I, I do have a mentor, and her name is Lorna Sass, and she did, she does, did a great book called Vegetarian Cooking Under Pressure. Um, really wonderful. She was the one who really got me into pressure cooking. Um, and I've been teaching pressure cooking for 13 years, and the reason I did a DVD is because in my book I have a chapter on pressure cooking. I've been talking about pressure cooking. I've you know, been raving about pressure cooking, but it wasn't until I started showing people how to use the pressure cooker that they really got it. Mm-hmm. Then what I found is when my book came out, which was a few years ago, people would, like, gloss over that pressure cooking section. So I thought, you know, this is a really visual thing, so let me do a DVD. And within, I would say, a week of the DVD coming out, somebody wrote me a testimonial, which was completely unsolicited, and she said, I learned more from watching your DVD than the two pressure cooking books I have. And because it's, people are really afraid of the pressure cooker. Well, sure, because it can explode and destroy your house, right? Well, that's the (laughs) old-fashioned pressure cookers could do that. And I tell a story in the DVD that, you know, I saw my mother's pressure cooker blow up. I don't actually actually remember it. It's one one of those press things, like you don't really want to remember. Wow. But I remember the, you know, whole gestalt around it. Um, And so I was really afraid of the pressure cooker. But... What, and I actually bought one and never used it and returned it, and then I bought another one. Now, the new pressure cookers are not the same as the old pressure cookers. The old pressure cookers had a little thing on top, a little jiggly thing. They went, you know, and it was really scary. The new ones have what's called a spring valve, and it's a little valve that pops up, and basically you don't hear anything. Okay, and they don't explode I've been using them in my junior college class with all kinds of students for the last, I'd say, about eight years, and we've not had one incident. All right. Well, so just in case there are people who uh, have never encountered pressure cooking, because there was kind of a vogue uh, in, in the 70s for pressure cooking, I think, and then it, it, it fell off. So there may be people who have been coming up in the, uh, in, you know, in, in the trough of uh, pressure cooking's popularity, and now they're like, what, what is this? What is the, the basic principle? How, how is it that pressure, you know, is, is going to make something cook? So here's what happens in the pot. It's basically, you know, the same as your regular pot, but it has a different top on it. And it has a gasket, and you seal it on, and they have either one or two pressure settings. And what happens is that the top pushes when, when water boils, or liquid of any kind boils, it pushes up against the top of the pot, and that creates a seal and makes pressure. So instead of cooking at 212 degrees, it cooks around 250. So it cooks much faster than it does um, just boiling. And what happens in that is some kind of transformation, which I can't really explain because I've never been able to get in the pot and see what happens. 
But um, it just kind of infuses flavor and makes the food cook better. So, for instance, if you cook vegetable soup on top of the stove, when you're done, usually, you know, one thing may be cooked perfectly and one thing may be cooked a little too much and the vegetables kind of get a little mushy on the edges and so on. Mm -hmm. When you cook in the pressure cooker, when you put your vegetables in, that pressure kind of like, I would call it like seals the vegetables so that you get very distinct shapes and colors and the flavors come out much brighter. Hmm. Okay. Um, in fact, every time I do a, a, you know, a demo on pressure cooking, I have this uh, brain that like, you know, it's like the first time every time and I open the pressure cooker and I'm like, wow, those carrots are so orange, like I never saw it before. But okay. it still amazes me. Um, at, at what happens. So, like, my son likes broccoli, and it literally takes one minute at pressure in the pressure cooker, um, and it comes out this bright green, and even though it's thoroughly cooked, it's not mush. Huh. So I guess this is what, because I was going to ask you, what is it about uh, the visual aspect that really helps to sell this? And even though we were, this is an audio medium right here, I was going to ask you to describe it, but that seems to be one of the things that that uh, you can get across visually. You look in there and you can really see uh, how, how it looks different than something just left in a crock pot all day, right? Right. And, I mean, it's the, it's the texture and the color. But what I want to tell you is I actually have some YouTube videos on pressure cooking okay. under the VQ. And on my pressure cooking, I have two websites. And on my pressure cooking website, which is pressurecookingonline.com, I have a clip that shows me using the pressure cooker, um, how to use it, so people can see, you know, how easy it is. But um, those YouTube videos, I'm actually cooking. Okay, great. So uh, people can go and, and, like, follow you step by step through the process. Yeah, I mean, I, I make a couple of recipes so that you can see what it is. Okay. Um, but it is, you know, it's one of those things It's actually quite easy to do and... Um, you know, it's way – here's what I say the difference between a pressure cooker and a crock pot is. If you have a crock pot, you have to think in advance, number one. So that lets me right out of the equation. <laughs> um, and the other thing is that instead of the flavors getting brighter and more distinct, they kind of tend to get a lot muddier. In the crock so pot. Right. When I use a pressure cooker, it's because it's 5 o'clock and I'm like, what am I making for dinner? Um, and so for people who want, like, last-minute cooking – the pressure cooker is perfect. Okay, and you also, in when we were talking about doing this interview, you made a comment about uh, the pressure cooker as the vegan's best friend. Now, is it just because of the the way that it uh, that it seals the vegetables, or do you have some other, you know, uh, reason for saying that? Absolutely, it's all about the legumes. It's about the beans, peas, and lentils. How so? Um, and so. My son, this is, this is really how I got into pressure cooking. Um, my, I have a son who's almost 16, and so my son loved lentil soup. And so when he was little, he'd always ask me for lentil soup. I wanted to be the good mom, so, you know, I'd be like, yeah, I'm going to make him lentil soup. Well, once I got a pressure cooker, I was able to make lentil soup from start to finish. This is like chopping the vegetables, putting them in, cooking it, and being done in 20 minutes. Okay. This is my most requested recipe. And this is starting from raw lentils? From raw lentils. Okay. Because, I mean, at our house, we, we've come up with this amazing strategy of uh, using canned lentils. 
Oh, man, <laughs> got to get rid of the can. No, here, here's one of my students actually figured out that in what she saved by not buying canned organic beans would pay for her pressure cooker in less than a year. Wow, well, see, that's, that's something that we can all use in these trying economic times. Absolutely. And, uh, you can cook, uh, and so here's, here's the, the deal with the pressure cooker. If, I like to pre-soak my beans, but you don't have to. But So I always pre-soak them, and, and believe me, I don't do that, you know, do it in the morning or do it the night before, and that's only because I can't think that far in advance. Okay. So I do what's called the quick soak. I put three inches of water above my beans, and I turn it on, and I boil it for one minute, and I turn it off, and I let it sit for an hour. Then I dump it out. Now, in the pressure cooker, if let's say those were black beans, um, black beans take anywhere from five to seven minutes at pressure. So there is some time for the pressure to come up. So that's the water to boil and get to the top of the cooker and push that little valve up. And then there's the cooking time, which is, um, you know, let's say six minutes. We'll do the average here. And so that's maybe going to take about 11 minutes or so. And then there's the time that it takes for the pressure to come down. And so let's say that's another 10 minutes. So, you know, we're into this now like maybe 20 minutes. And so that's beans cooked. Wow. Well, that's, that's pretty impressive. So if somebody is listening to this and says, well, maybe I should get a pressure cooker, first of all, what, it, what is the range of, of prices that somebody might expect to pay for a pressure cooker? What's the difference between just, I mean, is, is there such a thing as a, an entry-level bargain basement pressure cooker? Well, there is, It seems is, like you actually. wouldn't want to stink there, too much on that. You can sometimes see them, like, you, these are stainless steel cookers, and you can sometimes see them for maybe $40, maybe $50. Mm -hmm. There's one that's called a modified jiggle top, so it's not a true spring valve cooker. So what you want to get if you're looking for one of these spring valve ones is a little thing that pops up. Otherwise, there's a little dial on the top, and that is like the jiggler, but it's not the jiggler. So I would say make sure you get a spring valve one, and you can find them sometimes on sale for, now I have some, one of my students found like four of them at Ross, um, you know, for $50, and those were the real deal. Um, but usually they're going to be anywhere from, I'd say $60 on sale at one of the big department stores to around $100. Okay. But and it's, it's an investment. You d there's, like, no moving parts. There's a gasket. And on my pressure cooker, which I used almost every day, I would say, for about five years, it took that long before I needed to replace the gasket. Wow. So you didn't, and that's just the gasket, you, or did you have to buy a whole new pressure no, cooker? No, just the gasket, and it was like 10 or $12. Okay, and people can, uh, now you, you mentioned one site, I think, and do you have another one? I believe you did, you, people I can actually too. come and buy the pressure cookers from your site, or what, what's that? Well, I do have pressure cookers on my site, and I have them shipped directly. Um, and so they're on both my sites, so I have the pressurecookingonline.com, and then I have the veggiequeen.com. Great, and we will be sure to have those in our show notes for this VegCast. And uh, we are out of time now, but uh, I've learned a lot about pressure cooking today. Had to rethink some of my, uh, you know, prejudices, and maybe I'll be running out and getting one soon. But uh, if nothing else, we have uh, we've learned why a pressure cooker is the vegan's best friend, right? 
That's right. Well, Vance, I hope it will become your best friend, too. I hope so, too, and uh, I certainly appreciate... You are my best friend, by the way. Okay, <laughs> great. <laughs> I appreciate you being uh, a friend enough to come on VegCast and talk about pressure cooking, and I wish you the best with your book and your DVD. And uh, again, thanks for being on VegCast. And thank you for having me. Great. Hey, back here in the studio, just listening to that as I was mixing it, I finally realized... Of course, uh, Jill was saying gratin. Uh, I was thrown off because she didn't say gratin like uh, people where I grew up would say it. Uh, nor did she say it with the correct Parisian accent. Uh, it may have been a different French uh, section that uh, she was tending toward there. But uh, it's humorous that I actually uh, have a degree in French and couldn't recognize the word. So sorry for not uh, cluing into that, Jill, and I will try to do a better job, if you will, as well, next time. All right, thanks. I've got some bread on my table, salad on my plate. I just drank some juice and I'm feeling really great. I don't know why we have to kill for our meal. Let's give our furry friends a better deal. Watermelon, cantaloupe, cherries and lime. I'm eating all these things and I'm feeling really fine. I don't know why we have to kill for a meal. Let's give our furry friends a better deal. And you'll get what you need I don't know why we have to kill for a meal Let's give our furry friends a better deal Let's give our feathered friends a better deal Let's give our finny friends a better deal Let's give all living beings a, a better deal, a better deal, a better deal, a better deal. That is Dada Veda making a return appearance on VegCast with a better deal, a song that uh, is released to us right hot off of the presses, uh, but he is working on a new album, uh, looking toward the summer for that release. Maybe Better Deal will be on that. You can keep up with Dada Veda by going to our show notes and finding his link there. But before you go, I would like you to listen to this. Science. The Science Fact for VegCast 59 is cured meats 
Tied to Childhood Leukemia Risk. This is a Reuters story reporting on a study that uh, was in the journal BMC Cancer. Uh, And the lead goes as follows. Children who regularly eat cured meats like bacon and hot dogs may have a heightened risk of leukemia, while vegetables and soy products may help protect against cancer, a new study suggests. Researchers found that among 515 Taiwanese children and teenagers with and without acute leukemia, those who ate cured meats and fish more than once a week, had a 74% higher risk of leukemia than those who rarely ate these foods. On the other hand, kids who often ate vegetables and soy products, like tofu, had about half the leukemia risk of their peers who shunned vegetables and soy. So uh, one of the authors, David C. Cristiani, told Reuters Health, based on this and previous studies, he and his colleagues recommended that children not eat high amounts of cured meats and fish. And it goes on to explain that uh, the main problem with uh, cured meats is uh, the addition of nitrites, whereas in contrast, vegetables and soy contain antioxidants that may help neutralize those same compounds. And that's uh, the long and the short of how that happens. But uh, the takeaway there is that children really should not be eating uh, copious amounts of bacon, sausage, or hot dogs. And yet they are. Uh, Anytime they, for example, go to McDonald's or to the lunch, school lunch cafeteria where hot dogs are being served, which uh, if it's anything like it was when I was growing up, is at least once a week, if not more. uh, And you know very well that that's not the only time that they're having cured meats. So uh, it seems like if we really did care about the children, I mean, I hate to invoke that think of the children cliche, but if we really are serious about not making our children ill with cancer, uh, we would get at least the cured meats out of at least uh, taxpayer-funded venues such as school lunch programs that have basically a captive audience in kids and are being fed these foods that are now proven in not just this study but other studies to uh, have a direct correlation with cancer risk. Uh, And it kind of boggles the mind that we're not willing to do that for the children's sake. We're certainly not willing to do it for our own sake. But it's a different thing to be pushing this crap on children and trying to get them used to eating it so that they can uh, be habituated by the time they're adults. And when I say so that they can, I'm not alleging that there is some conscious conspiracy, but it certainly works out well that way for the cured meat purveyors. But the cured meat purveyors are no match for the clarity and knowledgeability and overall usefulness of the VegCast feature called Science Fact. Okay, before we wrap this up, just one more note from the world of vegetarian podcastery. If you recall from VegCast 33, Dave Warwack, the vegan teacher in uh, Illinois who got fired for being uh, too vocal about veganism to his art students 
and who subsequently wrote a book about that and about his philosophy. He now has regular gig on Vegan Radio uh, over there at veganradio.com, Vegan School 101. So I invite you to go over to Vegan Radio and check that out. And while you're there, see if their site is still calling it Vegan Radio 1001, which I guess is really the same thing, depending on how you want to number your courses. But I, I had a, a good chuckle at that. So because Lord knows I've never made any of those kind of uh, typos or errors on the VegCast main page that have sat up there for uh, weeks or months at a time. So anyway, check out Vegan School 101 on veganradio.com. Okay, I'm going to get out of here, and I hope that you have a fine Valentine's Day, you and yours, uh, where applicable, and that you enjoy some fine vegan chocolates. Remember, it's the dark chocolates that are good for you. Milk chocolate, simply not the case. Thanks to Jill Nussenau for coming on and sharing her expertise on pressure cooking. Thanks to Dada Veda for a better deal and for getting that right over to us hot off the presses. Thanks to you for subscribing to VegCast, which you can do at VegCast.com. And until next time, get out there and live like you mean it. VegCast.